Beautiful. Okay, so I'm Carrie Lake, creator of the Animals of a New Earth podcast. And today I asked my beautiful friend, Kelsey Beasley, to be here for a conversation. Kelsey and I met through an online group of people um, all willing to accelerate in our awareness and our consciousness um, to, to be able to share more genuinely who we are, to do our work more genuinely in the world. And um, Kelsey and I connected um, largely because of animals and a deep, profound appreciation for animals. But from really uh, what I would say a unique perspective that Kelsey has. So she lives up in Alberta, Canada, and is a, a shepherd by her own declaration. She has sheep. I don't know if you have cattle as well, but um, I wanted to have and share this conversation with Kelsey with everybody because of the enormous charge of separation among humanity that exists about animals as food and how can how can people say that they love animals if they raise them to kill them for food and it's a very highly charged conversation very potent but i know you know from other conversations kelsey and i can talk about this from a place of absolute love and honor and um i just want I, Kelsey, I wanted to give you the chance to talk about what's in your heart in this realm and then um, see what other thoughts or questions come up in our conversation. So that's where this is starting. And is there anything you want to say to further introduce yourself? Um, sure. I, I want to just... Um... Yeah, you ex you described that I'm from Alberta, Canada, and uh, I think the the another description that would work is I'm a I'm a person of the prairies. So I grew up in the prairie environment, and um, that whole in, um, ecosystem has largely been integrated with agriculture and livestock. Right, and been in Western Canada, so it's really it really describes kind of like you know, where I'm from and who I'm, who I am and the culture that I was raised in um, is in a prairie environment. So that's, I think that's a, a good place. It gives people an idea of, uh, of kind of the mindset that I was brought up in. So um, please just say more about that, right? Because like on the video, you have a multicolored ceiling fan and you've got a cool room full of the, the globe <laughs> and the planet, right? And so... Yeah. Like it's not common to be from the prairie and and to um, associate yourself with that. So what does that mean? What are you talking about? Why is it why is it a thing? It's a th it's a thing because um, so I really resonate with the grasslands and the prairie environment was created like that's the the grasslands and grasslands are located all over the world, mm -hmm. Africa, South America, Australia. North America, Asia, we have these steppe environments that um, before the agricultural revolution, we, you know, nomadically speaking, human, human beings lived on the grasslands and they herded animals and they hunted animals on the grasslands. So we're, you know, it's, 
I, but I'm also, yeah, I think in a global perspective, like I, I look at the world as one home. So that's mm-hmm. kind of, I have lots of references to that in mm-hmm. my, in my household. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, I'm glad that you brought that up actually, because I think people can think about African, African grasslands or Asian grasslands and, you know, at least in the United States, I think there's a general disposition that Canada is just weird <laughs> and out there, right? Um, but cold, we're, we're the land of ice. Right, right. And um, so, so to me, it's so rich when you talk about it this way. Like, when I, when I tune into the grasslands and I just feel myself in relation to what that is, it's so nourishing. Like, there's just open space for life to be what it is up there. And, uh, or in Africa, like that's, that's like the, the whole icon is all of the large hoofed animals and all the large animals still have space to exist on this planet. Yeah. So being human that lives that way, you know, humans have built this, um, like, like you said, the industrial revolution, right? We've built this industrialized way of keeping animals, which is, you know, very much exploiting to some degree. So can you talk about like, there? I mean, I know you're aware of, of that, but I also know that you have a very different perspective about raising animals to be able to feed humanity. Can you just just share from your heart, like, what what do you love about who you are and what you do? Um, what I love the most about who I am and what I do is being able to experience the rhythm of large ungulate, large animal um, life whether i mean we have a sheep flock we have a cow herd we have horses we don't eat horses just want to make that clear but we we use horses for um herding purposes and you know we have we mimic the movement and the rhythm of how the dynamic between the soil the plant and the animal all inter inter interrelate yeah and we that down on our place but what I love the most about it is like this is this is a natural rhythm this is what happened you know this is what's been happening for thousands and thousands of years and the and as mankind has you know exponentially taken off in this direction those ways of being have now had to change and adapt but living on the grasslands I get to I get to go back to that and actually can can biomimic that the best I can um, with the area that I that I can that I interact with so it's it's something that is to me it's it's a natural way of being it's not always the easiest way Um, the environment is harsh we live in a harsh world and mother nature can be ruthless sometimes that's how that's how ecology works but at the same time, it's it's an incredible thing to be part of and be integrated. It's it is it's like music in a way. It and it's it's amazing to watch and it's amazing to feel. It's amazing to experience. And um, yeah, we have four seasons in Canada, so right. winter, 
spring, fall, and, and summer, and each one of those has its own challenges and its own um, blessings in a way. And yeah, to me, what I love about what we do producing food out here is we get to, you know, be part of this rhythm. Okay, so, thank you. I think um, it's easy for people to forget that there still is a rhythm of life that's something other than, you know, drive in the car from A to B and then go to the store and pick up packages of food and go home, you know. Um, I'm glad that you're talking about that. Like, when you're, when you're raising the animals, how much land do you manage? What's the, the scope of the space? Scope and the scale. So um, in, in Canada, we use, we can use hectares or acres. We're still like on an acre scale, but we're on a metric system too. So legally, we, we manage 1,280 acres. Okay. Um, but I also, our, some of our stock go out into other land that's managed, um, lease land, you know, large, large sections of natural area that um, incorporate grazing animals into part of the management system and then some of our sheep actually go into they go quite a ways uh, away during the summer and they are part of a program to manage invasive species uh, invasive leafy spurge on sensitive um, sensitive natural areas and they they graze to to keep this invasive weed from overtaking mm. um, overtaking a a certain space so there's about 12,000 acres that they go to and they mm. they're part of the they're part of the system of an integrated weed management plan mm. that's amazing the the 1200 acres that you manage more directly is, yes, is that cool. enough space to actually experience rhythms of nature in relation to animal life yes yes say more about that because I and again I just I want to, I want you be, to share yeah. okay, so I'll the give, experience. I'll give it, it doesn't even like I grew up I grew up on a smaller parcel of land. Um, I grew up right beside a river in a town, and there was 30 acres along the river valley that my parents' family uh, owned, owned and still owns. And so I grew up right beside a river in an urban setting, but it was still rural. Mm. It, was, it was even zoned rural, zoned agriculture. And then just outside of town, my parents had a small farm, still have a small farm that's in our family. And um, that's 480 acres. Mm. Now that land is, it's about 300 kilometers from where I live now, but it has four times the production that we have here. Wow. And, and that, that, like, that just goes to show like the different eco zones that we are living in um, and how land varies in its capacity to produce. And that's based on soil quality, climate, um, moisture, precipitation, soil fertility, soil, soil health, all those mm. types of things that we're dealing with. But the rhythms have always been there. And I mean, experiencing, you know, the new growth of spring or the, you know, the fall, the fall frost and the um, ability for that piece of ground to sustain life it you know you can experience like if it's in its natural state if it hasn't been disturbed or cultivated right 
the rhythm is a little bit more um, noticeable right. versus versus when it's been cultivated and then you know cha changed under agricultural practices. So what's really interesting and really amazing about raising livestock for food is that you can integrate livestock into natural areas where that whole system ecosystem is still um, intact and above and below ground including the huge amount of livestock below the surface of the soil called the microbiome which i really like to focus on yes yeah. i love the perfect transition because the next i was just going to sort of circle around to a film that has that got quite a lot of attention called the biggest little farm have you seen that i have seen the the preview for it it looks yeah. so yeah it looks good it's gorgeous and i saw an interview with those guys the the husband and wife whose names i'm not going to remember but um with those guys they were talking about how in order to do a, a truly biodynamic farm you know um that it really requires animals on the property and yes. it, it to have the microbiome requires and it, it on one hand it's profoundly obvious but on the other hand it's um it's not so obvious to people whose mindset is straight to the 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 opinion that humans should not eat animals should not exploit animals for food when plants exist right and their point was that having the animals on the land is absolutely hands down necessary and it can be done in a way that is profoundly humane and beautiful and so they're they're really putting that message out in media so um and it does all come back to the microbiome that really digests and nourishes everything so what do you what do you want to say about all that um uh, there's a large movement in western canada right now about like soil health because we're seeing a lot of indications and symptoms of um a system that is you know as far as health goes health is a form of function and it's not functioning well we're seeing more indications of pathogens and you know resistance to like not the immunity that should be there for plant communities for cereal mm -hmm. like crops we're growing and it's because there's a, a lack of biodiversity right. and that lack of biodiversity is actually a lack of biodiversity in the soil because micro the microbiome is substrate specific so when you mm. take only one plant and you re regrow it continuously you are creating a substrate in that soil for um, a very low profile low biodiverse microbiome and that allows opportunistic pathogens to come in. And then you see weeds coming up because nature doesn't work. Like nature looks at it and goes, no, no, we need to change this. Like this isn't good. And, um, and livestock, you know, wildlife, whether it's wildlife or livestock, there's going to be large herbivores that are going to consume those plants and be part of that ecosystem because that's how it's that's how the grasslands have evolved they've evolved with grazing animals and um Dr. so Fred necessary they, they yeah. 
Dr. Fred Provenza wrote, just released a book called Nourishment. And it's an, it's about the innate wisdom that we can learn mm. from, from animals and how they eat. And I mean, we are all, we are part of that ecosystem and it is, it's, it's very integrated and it's very dynamic. And, um, it's actually like, it's a, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to raise livestock for food. Please, please, please say more about that. Like how, where, where's your heart in all this? How, how do the livestock touch your, your human heart when you, and I'm asking on behalf of other people, okay? When you know that you will be sending them to an industrialized death. So what I get the most, um, the most relief or comfort, I think is the word from raising livestock for food is first of all, I know where they go when they die. I, we have a relationship with the abattoir that is the, that slaughters them. We know how it happens. Mm. We, we have an influence on how those animals their final hours of their life mm. so me i have that sense of responsibility and like moral compass to know that okay i'm mm. sending these animals off and they're going to have a respectful and honorable death and it's going to be you know free of pain and fear because they're handled in a way that they are familiar with mm. up the end so that that to me that's like that's how as a person who raises them I I go right to the finish it's not it's not just um they leave my farm and I don't think about them ever again Mm -hmm. because I I take that responsibility on and and then everything from their like I think that and I think where a person really has insight into um raising food for consumption is like i'm i'm married and I'm, I, we have children and i'm married to my partner um who is a hunter like no hands down that's that's who they are and mm-hmm. so i I've, I've become very like enlightened to the process mm-hmm. we can we hunt for sustenance mm-hmm. so we consume what we eat mm-hmm. and um and then the other aspect of raising an animal for food is when you actually have to euthanize an animal because mm-hmm. it's the most appropriate thing for them for them at that time and you become very aware of like how important life really is mm-hmm. and the huge amount of um the huge like the huge honor you carry as uh, someone who practices animal husbandry and when you actually have to euthanize an animal yourself um i think that's probably one of the most like reconciling moments that you have as a as a stock person so so for me uh it's like i i you become very familiar with death mm-hmm. and then from there everything works backwards and you just tend to when you go through the process of like birth and raising animals every year in a new rhythm you you just you appreciate and you love and you value and you honor 
bringing life into the world so much more because it's such an amazing thing. And you know that they're going to carry through and they're going to live their life um, to the best that they possibly can under your care mm -hmm. up until of death, which then they go on to feed people. Mm -hmm. Oh, and even pets, right? I mean, yeah, and pets. Yes, pets. Mm -hmm. Pets. There's um, oh, two big things I want to say. One is I'm I'm aware of another company that raises all their own animals with the highest integrity and respect to produce pet food, and the way they talk about you know they have this conversation all the time. Like how, how can you justify killing other animals to feed animals and all this stuff? And aside from the fact that, you know, that's how nature works. Animals eat other animals. That's actually just true. And humans have just systematized these things because like you said, you know, human population and desires kind of skyrocketed. But the way they talk about raising the animals is just like you're saying, they, they, ensure they go out of their way to ensure that these the animals that become food have a rich and beautiful life while they are alive and the way they talk about it i love it's their life can be described as happy 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 dead and because people are afraid of dead the dead part sounds bad but it's a necessary part of life for life to continue on and so i think what you're saying is so beautiful to bring out the the reality that becoming acquainted if not you know rhythmic with death can open your appreciation of the creation of life as well right and you're talking about it from such a pragmatic planetary perspective, but it's the same perspective as, you know, really high frequency spiritual principles as well. You know, to say that, well, there is really no death. It's simply a transition into another form of life. And then birth is a transition from another form of life. And so, it, I hear you talking about the same thing, but from a very grounded, real, human, systematized perspective that doesn't exclude nature. You're not excluding nature. And that's, that is why I love hearing you talk about it. Um, I have to acknowledge there probably are farmers who don't operate the same way you do, who don't have the same perspective, who are just churning it out and not really aware of the experience of the animal. Although, because people are changing, people's pr uh, priorities are changing, that uh, the awareness of animal welfare is light years beyond where it was maybe even 50 years ago, right? And yeah. Uh, Yes, I, I think so. And I think um, most people that yep. at least at least here in Canada have that awareness of like the well-being of their stock is important. Yes. Um, we 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 Hang on a second. Hang on yeah. a second. These guys they heard something. Uh-huh. Guard dogs. Oh my god. 
so fantastic. Okay, please continue. <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, it's okay. And like, so, so I think <laughs> when we think of agriculture, especially livestock production, we have a idea of like, you know, we don't like confined systems. True, mm. because you can increase the risk of certain um, non-desired things happening, you know, in confinement. But at the same time, when you look at our climate, sometimes a confined system isn't always a bad thing. It just depends on the context of what's going on. Mm -hmm. and an be, example, more, be more specific, please, because so I, yeah, I know what you're talking like, about. So, so, I'm, so, I'm, so I'm describing like um, supply managed uh, let's, for example, let's say you, let's use chickens. Okay. And you have a chicken barn and they never leave the barn. Yeah. They never go outside. They never see that versus a free range system where you have chickens that are outside, they have access to outside, but at the same time, some that's a spectrum, you have total confinement and then complete free range. But at some time, there's a need for confinement in that system because a free range chicken is a high risk chicken of being dead a lot faster <laughs> due, to, due to things like predation and the environment. Exactly. Um, at some point we confine chickens, whether it's even if it's just overnight, they actually naturally want to go into confinement because they feel safe yeah. and they, they do that, they go to roost. So I think it's just a matter of the context of what you're working in. Yes, there's, you know, there's, there's there's opposites to each end um and each environment requires its own system if you have a if you're living in an environment that has a high predator population you're those chickens are better off you know in a some protection place. absolutely yeah yeah or if it's incredibly cold or if it's incredibly wet all the time you know then you those things you have to deal with the environment that you live in and that's really that is what more than the economy, more than the economics, mm -hmm. the environment is what um, dictates how we how we navigate our agricultural systems. If it's really really wet all the time, mm -hmm. your animals want to be housed because mm -hmm. nobody wants to be out in the wet all the time. But yet we live in wet, humid environments, mm -hmm. and um, so I think I think when we look at when we have this paradigm in agriculture when it comes to you know production of animals for food mm. people people can get caught up in one idea and my my biggest um my biggest lesson that i've learned is keep an open mind and you always have to you know put yourself in the position of i'm here i'm limited to this space and how am I going to tune into the rhythm of what's going on so that I can create sustenance for not only ourselves, but also our community. And your community can be local or it can be, it can be global. It depends on what, where you're, what you're producing is going. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, it's, it's integrating people, the land and the livestock. And that's what you mean when you talk when you talk about ecology is how everybody is rolling together given who they are and the environment that they're in, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it there's no there's no one surefire way of doing something in any given space. How I 
how I do something here is different to where things are done where I grew up and that's only 300 kilometers away. Right. It's different from like we've lived in, I lived in all three prairie provinces across Canada, mm -hmm. Alberta, Manitoba, and even though they're all part of the same region, they're very differently. And how we do things out here in Alberta now is completely different than how we did things in Manitoba. Like we mm -hmm. had much different issues and challenges there. Mm -hmm. And um, it requires, it requires being able to navigate the environment that you're in. Mm, yeah, for sure. Which includes your in yourself. I mean, I think this is whether people have an opinion about raising animals for food or they don't or whatever they do in the world. It's to me the foundation that that everybody that's common to everybody is starting with your own environment and are you willing to be flexible and listen to where you are in your environment you know and like you you were born into a family of ranching right which obviously not everybody is so it's there there's already this framework of how life makes sense to you and this is why i wanted you to talk about it you know because even when as, as i'm listening to you here there are, it's hard for you to talk about the water you swim in in a way that's simple enough for other people to understand, you know, and, yeah. and I get that. It, I think it's similar for everybody, um, given, you know, to look at the, the flexibility and the courage and the, the willingness it requires to look at your own environment in such a way that you're not judging yourself and you're not worried about someone else judging you either. And um, I know like you have that capacity, which is why I wanted to, to play and, and share all this. So um, I wanted to like turn the conversation a little bit because I know you have dogs and yes. you know, in North America, we really uh, have opinions about not eating dogs. That's a, we don't eat dogs. You have horses. Nope. We don't eat horses, right? Yeah. No, we don't. We don't eat. We don't eat our dogs. We don't eat our horses. And our kitties, right? And Cats. and yet, and in India, they don't eat cattle. They don't eat cattle. Yeah. Okay. So and in and in Middle East, they don't eat pork. Right. Yeah. So eating some and not others is a thing, you know. And in Europe, they do eat horses. It right, and that's abhorrent to much of the United States, just like dogs and cats. So I'm just gonna ask this really blunt question, right? Mm -hmm. Just to throw it out there, right? Um, how can you, where is your love for the animals if you eat some and not others? How can you say you love them? It has nothing to do with love. <laughs> what I choose to eat, um, because I, I I love, I love a lot of things and, um, but to me, it's about what makes sense in my mind as far as what is safe to eat for one. And I'm not saying that horses aren't safe to eat. That, that is a cultural conditioning, mm -hmm. uh, but love and culture and conditioning are two different things. Yes. And, you know, like. <laughs> Okay, so here's an example. Um, keeping an open mind, mm -hmm. you know, we're very fortunate. 
I think it's more gratitude than anything that mm-hmm. it allows me to choose what I am able to, like what I decide to eat. So how can I say I still love my cows and I love my sheep even though I consume them? Canada, North America, we're young in, as far as uh, you know, societies go. We, the Western prairies were settled by people who came out here in search of a better life. We haven't experienced things like famine yet. Um, we're completely naive and ignorant to the hardships. We're, we're, we're so privileged. We have like an incredible access to nourishment and food. And um, we, don't, we have never been put into a position where there's been such a shortage of protein that like we're essentially, and, and the climate that we're starving to death. So I, but then there's also the scientific aspect that I look at. For me, when I look at zoonotic infection, um, some people don't know this, but my background is in micro and immunology. So when I look at things like veterinary, zoonot- like veterinary virology and veterinary bacteriology and um, zoonotic infection, I know that there's just certain animals that I don't want to go near because <laughs> they, they are reservoirs or they carry certain microorganisms that can harm us so the large ungulates the large ruminating animals are pretty safe Mm. as hunting goes i don't want to eat a carnivore i don't you know we have i was invited once to a um a wild game uh gathering and it was about cooking like indigenous dishes in canada game and, you know, hunting and trapping in North America was actually the first industry ever here. And so managing like fur-bearing animals is, happens and predators are apparent. And um, I, I have no, I've never ever wanted to, it's like, oh, there's a, there's a bear, like somebody cooked up bear. No, thank you. It's not in my, but I'm also not starving to death. So I, to me, it's not it's not really a matter of, I think it's just a, like, I have a real great sense of gratitude because I have the privilege to choose to eat what I want right now. Right. And, and how can I say that, it, it, you know, I love, I love all things. Like we've all, you know, we've been created, they're here. And um, those magnificent, large, herbivores that we consume for sustenance if we if they weren't actually part of a food chain so there's other large predators out there if that was left to ecosystem dynamics and we didn't you know create food there would be a population shift things would go through their rhythm there would be die-off and die-off would come into the form of starvation and disease which is really terrible death so yeah that's you know that's we're we're in a we are a species that has huge impact and influence on this planet and we consume we consume animals for food and that that is the way it is <laughs> and manage it in such a way so that the food is available the food is available and to do that to recognize you know if we're living on grasslands and we're creating food 
plant-based food for human consumption. Our grasslands are here because of large mammals, livestock integrated right. on that grassland. So it is a complete cycle and we need large animals on the grasslands, on these landscapes to keep cycling through the forms of life that are required to keep things going. Absolutely. And I love it. That's, it's more evident now. I mean, there are 20 years, 30 years of studies about what happens, what happened when all the bison were killed because humans thought that was cool for a while, you know, and what happened when all the beavers were trapped because humans thought that was cool for a while. And what happened when all the wolves were killed because humans thought that was cool for a while, you know, and, and granted, there's a lot of people who were trying to think in a way of how to manage life so humans can thrive and make human life easier you know wolves will kill your sheep because it's easy and they you know wolf babies need to eat too right but um i love some of the really prevalent studies that have come out about like yellowstone reintroducing wolves into yellowstone and how the entire ecosystem came back to life because there were no longer the overpopulation of grazers that were eroding the land and tree, and then reintroducing beavers to rehydrate the land. And I mean, there's, there's studies of beaver in um, Nevada, in the deserts of Nevada, that rehydrate and recreate forested land in what looked like desert, just because of, you know, stripping away the root system and the microbiome. And so, beyond just listening to the wisdom of animals, it's engage me, engaging with the wisdom of animals, receiving the very, the simplicity of, oh yeah, if we bring beaver in, the, their natural way of being will rehydrate the planet in Absolutely. these areas. I just, it, I, it's just, I love that you just brought up the beavers. I actually just had this book out. Awesome. See? Yeah. And this is, this is called, this is like caring for the green zone. So this is a publication from um, part of our, we have a, a program called Cows and Fish up here in, for riparian area management in, mm. in Canada. And this is all about the role as the beaver plays as a keystone species in our watersheds. Completely. Like, it's so important. And um and like you can, you can have livestock and wildlife together on the landscape. It, it, they, they can form a cohesive unit and, you know, the landscape is adaptive. And yes. I, uh, I just, I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm really, I really enjoyed how you just brought beavers into that. Cause, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because, you know, we're Canadian and we, that's like one of our animals that's, they're amazing. They are amazing creatures. And then, so now I have to play off of what you just said, that you can have livestock and wildlife coexisting on the land. There's, in the United States anyway, this massive um, push, I guess, of cattle farmers, some, some way of justifying that wild horses need to be taken off of thousands and thousands of acres because they compete with cattle, which, you know, I'm sure there's a justification for it, it because it gets, keeps being pushed through legislation and humans trying to manage horses as a, a wild species. Granted, the horses out there largely have um, propagated from 
from domestic animals that either you know got loose or were turned loose or whatever. Um, but to manage farming and um, raising animals in a way where wildlife coexists with farmland, talk about that a little bit. But then there's one other thing I want to ask you about small farm paradigms because that's a huge thing here too, like returning to small farms to feed your local community. I want you to talk about that, but talk, please talk first about wildlife coexisting with farmed animals. So a lot of our, a lot of our um, farms and ranches that have livestock still have a lot of natural areas because those grazing lands are usually not fit for cultivation. Uh -huh. So those areas where are still kind of left in a semi-natural state or a natural state, and they're intact, and they're corridors, and they're also, like that's habitat. That's habitat for the local wildlife that, that resides there. And properly managed, there's a, you know, they create their own ecosystem. And um, and because, because that life, that, because that landscape is still the way it is because we haven't um changed it with cultivation practices you know then we look at we do that's where we integrate our livestock component of, of with the farms and and ranches that still have um livestock available like that's the other thing in canada i know that our national livestock herds numbers have been going down. The trajectory has been going down. So there's less livestock here than there has been really ever. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of our species at risk here in the prairies are on farms and ranches that still have large quantities of livestock and where they run their livestock. Mm. So you see everything, big That's, elk herds down yeah. to, you know, owls rattlesnakes you know reptiles songbirds are the biggest one you our, our prairie songbirds are the big one but um things that require really specific niche um you know in a niche environments and a canopy of environments that occur within within the grazing system because we have like it's not a uniform it's not a uniform system there's mosaic occurring Right, right, right. Oh, so beautiful. So beautiful. Oh, and I, oh, so many things I could say. So thank you. So now small, the small farm paradigm, like yes. if we're going to, if we're going to produce animals and keep breeding and creating life for food specifically, um, there's, you know, here I'm aware of it. I'm, I'm aware of this much, right? I'm just like skimming the surface of what what comes into my awareness here but um doing things like what what they did in the film the biggest little farm they have 200 acres and mm -hmm. they just uncompromisingly regenerated the microbiome and planted things and and they don't spray anything except maybe like garlic oil essence you know deterrence but no no death agents you know no chemical no cidal products, the side, the side and anything if you see herbicide or pesticide. Exactly. All cidal means death. So they're not killing stuff. Exactly. So so you know, here's 200 acres using less water, producing more, proving 
that harmonizing with nature actually, you know, generates life, including when it's time to use that life as food, whether it's apples or pigs, you know? And so then there's this belief system, you know, that's been industrialized that humanity can't be fed with small farms. Humanity can only be fed with huge industrial farms or, you know, the, the range stations in Australia that have 50,000 cattle running on 200,000 acres or whatever it is, or more, you know. So tell me your awareness of that, that dichotomy. So my awareness of that dichotomy, I'm really grateful. I've had some amazing mentors and I had one woman by the name of Brenda Shep um, say, I heard her say once that, you know, you look at assets are measured in, um, you know, wealth is measured in arteries, not assets. I think that's what she said or something along that line. So when I look at a small farm, a large farm requires a lot of arteries to move <laughs> what they're producing from one point to another. A small farm, and if you have, if you only have one major artery moving product in and out and you have a block there, it's huge risk. If you're just producing wheat or canola and you run 10,000 acres and you have a backlog in the system, which we've seen here previously, um, our, our farmers, they end up in a lot of trouble because all of a sudden they're producing a monoculture or you know maybe just one or two crops. They're, they have to have capacity for storage and if they can't get it to market, then all of a sudden, and I'm sorry, but we can't eat canola in the raw form. It's not good for us. So small farms, when you look at things like right now, when you have the, the halt of movement, yeah. and you know, right now we're experiencing something really unique in the world that we haven't really seen before um, in our lifetime. And that's our response to the information we're receiving about, you know, a virus that is spreading in a pandemic form. Right. If you take that and you extrapolate it to the stopment of the movement of food, right, then all of a sudden, small farms are integral in supporting their local communities. And we haven't experienced war like World War II was experienced or right. World War I. But those, a small farm, a backyard garden will, will support your family for a large proportion of time. Growing potatoes, you can get a lot of nourishment from a potato. Growing squash, growing, you know, the sisterhood of plants, a cereal, a legume, and, um, you know, another form like the, the squash family, potato, you know, fruit family as well. Plus, the other thing I look at is like, yeah, you know, people are keeping pigs. What, what a wonderful alternative to food waste when you look at the amount of food waste that occurs in our society right now um i don't i've kept pigs before they are they are truly intelligent they are really amazing animals they are amazing and animals. nothing makes me feel better than taking my vegetable peelings out to my pigs and watching them consume you know stuff that i mean i have a compost now and i have worms so i have worms instead but Right. You, you know, you can choose the type of livestock you want to keep on a small scale. Um, 
worms are great, you know. <laughs> they are. They're they're great. And you know, they're quite if you kill them, it sucks, but you don't I don't think you really feel as bad about killing a worm as you do something else. Well, that's that that's back to that cultural conditioning, you know, and it is, you know. And it, and it's okay to call that out because it's real. We're based on where we live, we're embedded with a different value system on the on what's around us and the forms of life around us and to me it's so worth it to just acknowledge that rather than try to fight it and say oh it's this one is good and that one is bad you know like you were saying earlier it's like be willing to recognize the ecology and the environment that you're actually in and then look at what you can do in harmony with it you know and yeah this is so in in the whole conversation about raising animals for food and how that is contributing, how it can contribute to creating a, a new earth, a new way for humanity to live in harmony with other life on this earth. There's, you know, again, Maggie has some ideas about it, but again, there's um, the, the spiritual approach of the etheric wisdom of animals and and how what the meaning of animals in consciousness and that is it's it's beautiful it's powerful it's real it's just as real as looking at the ecology of how um worms and cow poop improve the soil so everybody can actually be fed and you know yeah. I, I think from my heart there's um the point of bringing this up and maybe we'll get to do other conversations and just keep pulling, pulling this stuff forward is that when we are as humans, I mean, humans are the ones that can push and pull everything around this planet at will. You know, we, with, with farming, we basically conquered survival and yet so many people live in survival, but we can grow our own food and we can like manage what time of year we get food it it's our survival in that sense if we were to talk to each other globally we're set we have we we do we are we have yes. we have a huge ability for impact and we influence so much with yeah. very little um with very with, it doesn't take much for us to influence something on with that has such a like, huge impact and i you know i look at when you look at things like whether it's worms or your or a cow um everybody has a certain amount of energy that is within that system within their own like they're a living organism and their lifespan is different they're Right. Their cycles are everything's different, but they all they all live, reproduce, and die. Mm -hmm. And it all has a very similar rhythm and a very similar pattern. It's just a different wavelength, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. We happen to be conductors of a really magnificent orchestra, is kind of how I look at it. Mm, I love that. That's really beautiful. And I, I love that too because it it provides a way to honor humanity as part of the symphony rather than the holding humanity separate as the good guy or the bad guy 
right? The, the ultimate power or the ultimate destroyer. Instead, it's saying, hey, let's actually include ourselves in this and look at it in terms of ecology, of, of harmonizing from, from the perspective of everybody wins. The microbiome wins, the worms win. Cattle, you know, if we weren't producing cattle for food, like you said, there would be a major die-off. It would be icky. There would be dead bodies all over the place because there aren't enough predators to consume all of the excess that, you know, bodies that would need to be eaten or decomposed or whatever. And I've heard people ask this before too about horses um, in, the, in the same sort of discussion about, uh, in, about the opinions about horse racing. And, and what if there were no horse racing anymore? What would happen to all the horses? And for a while, there would be an excess of thoroughbreds and Arabians that, and even quarter horses that are no longer racing. But once, once that little hub were to be transcended, we'd realize there wouldn't be an excess of animals because humans would no longer be producing them for that industry. So in that way, nature would balance itself back out again as well. When, when humans start interacting with other species and with their environment from the perspective of harmonizing rather than the perspective of uh, profiting or dominating. And to me, yeah. that, that's the conversation of, of a new earth. And um, so we don't have to stand up and hold a flag of a big opinion that this is good and that is bad. You know, instead, this is why I love your conversation about ecology. Instead, it's let's look at what we have and let's look at what we can do with what we have from a place. This is the really important part of why am I doing what I'm doing for the wellness and health and perpetuation of all species. And I think farming can be done, clearly farming can be done from that honor and perspective which is truly an embodiment of the higher frequencies, a higher consciousness awareness of harmony is our natural state of being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we live, we live in a world where the, like we have universal language and universal language is energy and symphony and music. You know, we relate on that. We don't have to speak in terms of semantics. And so, when you when you are looking at a rhythm you know that that just carries over into a natural system you know there there's night song you go out at night mm -hmm. onto a, and you have there's night song going on you hear things that you don't hear during the day same at twilight same same at dawn yes dusk like things and it changes with the season as well. And so I think like it's becoming like really attuned to your natural environment, whether you're on two acres or 2000 acres, right. you know, you can, you can create a system working with the resources that you have that can integrate wildlife, that can integrate livestock. You know, if you're in an urban center and you can't keep a cow, 
you know, you can keep a compost, you can grow vegetables, you can, you know, you can create a community of agrarian minded people. Right. And support outwardly communities of agrarian minded people. Yeah. And it, I mean, we, we have to eat, we eat three times a day at, at least, know, <laughs> at least or, I mean, I'm a big I'm a big advocate of intermittent fasting I uh, I consume I like and I'm I consume a, a high meat diet and because of just some of the health things that I've experienced getting to know myself and mm-hmm. I recognize okay like our our system I'm responding to our agricultural food production system in I'm, I have sensitivity. So for me, eating meat helps reduce some of my sensitivity and fasting helps reduce that. So I don't eat actually eat three times a day, but my family does. Yeah. 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 Well, what I hope and would um, offer for a, a different way that people can engage with this whole conversation about animals as food and and how farming is done is to come to find within themselves that feeling of truth that the music and the symphony and the the harmony is the way life is designed to happen and nature demonstrates that in so many ways so when even in listening to this kind of a conversation and then thinking about it later come first to your own sense of what what harmony feels like even listen to a symphony listen to the birds that's why it has such an effect on our systems is because it is that natural to go be in nature and listen to birds and just exhale let yourself explore feeling that first then consider the whole um, farming paradigm the vegetarian paradigm what's what's required to adhere to one set of rules or another you know because even a lot of um a lot of people want to be vegetarian to avoid killing for them to eat you know and the um the the morality of that which i honor i totally get that it's it's really coming from a place of do no harm but it is impossible for humans to consume food without killing something you know mm-hmm. insects die in in just plowing fields even if you use no sidal compo- compounds and um it, it really death when we no longer hold on to that socio-cultural belief that death is bad and should be avoided then we can embrace more of a rhythmic relationship Mm -hmm. as a human being we can start to recognize it as something that's very real that death is not the ending of anything it is just a point of transition into a different form of life and um and it really does challenge people to look at what's important to me is life important to me or is my belief system important to me and then animal, the, the whole entire animal kingdom, whether it's a human created breed or is, you know, a snow leopard, the presence of the animal kingdom is so present and steadily guiding humans 
to notice the, the rhythms of nature through their heart. That's where it comes back to the heart for me because that, that symphony really is felt through our heart. Mm -hmm. Whether you call it love or not, it's a presence. And, you know, I call it love because it's the space where everything is happening. Um, but yeah, it's, it really is assisting, like being willing to look at things in this way assists humanity to a, a higher consciousness way of interacting with how we feed humanity. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up for now? No, I just want to say thank you, Carrie, for this uh, awesome opportunity to to have a conversation about like my way of life because it's I don't actually get to talk to people very often about it, but um, yeah. it's been a it's been a real um, honor to do so. So thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you for being so open about all of it too, and I, that's something I so appreciate about you is your willingness to go, yeah, this is how it is. And this is, I mean, to me, you, you are, it, you just exude love because you, you just are who you are and this is what you do and you understand it from many different perspectives. And I so appreciate that in you. So thanks. Stay well, be well. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Okay, bye-bye. Don't 